He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because regardless of what happens in this world, Jesus did something amazing. That means we can be forgiven and reconciled with God. And that life doesn't have to be temporary. It can be eternal. And that gift is better than anything we can receive in the temporary life here. Because we can experience an eternity in the presence of God, in the presence of perfection and goodness and love. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Second Samuel chapters 20. Father God, uh, thank you. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the ability to continue doing this. Uh, God, we just pray as we get closer to finishing this book and closer to looking at the whole of, of David's life uh, that you have laid out in your scripture. God, I just pray that you can fill us with an understanding of what you want us to know. Uh, from what we're reading tonight. Um, help us get closer to you and understand you better and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so last week was a pretty pivotal moment. We ended in uh, chapter 19. Absalom has been defeated. David is back in Jerusalem. There is still a lot of tension between the northern tribes and the tribes of of Judah and Simeon in the south. And that is where we find ourselves as we enter the 20th chapter. And it starts out by saying, and there happened to be uh, to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. So that sums up really what we're talking about. There's still sort of bickering between the north and the south. Um, at the end of this period, David is back in Jerusalem. He's the rightful king. He's the king over all of Israel. But the northern tribes get caught up in this complaint by this guy, Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they follow him from this point off of the battlefield. Now, as we go through this, you'll find out that not everybody stays with him. This was sort of a, a harsh reaction to the immediate 
harsh words between the tribe of Judah uh, and the northern tribes at the end of chapter 19, which I can even, you know, uh, reread the last verse in, uh, in chapter in chapter 19, it said, The men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? You were not the first to advise bringing back our king, yet the word of the men of Judah was fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So there's something going on in that they wanted to bring David back. They were loyal to David. They liked David, but they didn't seem to like each other very much. And so this fight breaks out. Uh, Sheba takes the northern tribes with him, and they're all riled up against the kingdom and against the south. Um, but they don't stay riled up for long. But he does contain uh, quite a, a large following still uh, in this rebellion as David is back on the throne. So that's the backdrop of what's happening. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day uh, of their death, living in widowhood. So this is sort of a interesting statement. It's outside of the narrative of what's happening, but it does fill in some gaps of what's going on. So while David was outside of Jerusalem and Absalom had taken his spot, he publicly made it known that he was sleeping with David's concubines as a as a show of power and a show of that he had taken his father's throne and taken what was his father's. And so David has now, as he's gone back into Jerusalem, he knows what's happened uh, and he takes care of these 10 women, but he no longer has a relationship with them. He makes sure they're taken care of and cared for um, but they no longer have an, that type of interpersonal connection with him. Um, and basically, I think politically, it's to show that he's not submitting to something that Absalom did. Verse, verse 4, And the king said to Amasa, Now remember, Amasa is, was the commander of Absalom's army, and David had made him the commander as a, as a way to unite the the people, north and south together, he gave Amasa, the, the, he's the chief, the general of the army. So the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men went with the Carathites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men and went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So because Amasa is late, Joab basically gets his job back. <laughs> he is now pursuing this rebel. Uh, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, 
Joab, who just kind of got his job back, but not actually. He's just running this one campaign, finds Amasa, and he has a sword on him. And he goes in to kiss Amasa to show a sign of respect. This should sound a little bit familiar. It's what Judas did to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Joab leans in to kiss Amasa. Uh, Verse 10, but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he died. And he, he did not strike him again, thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Joab takes his job back by force, and he's it's kind of known for this, right? He killed Abner. He killed Absalom. And now he's killed Amasa. And he has murdered his way to power. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood and in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway in the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So everyone's now just following Joab. When he went through all the tribes of Israel to, uh, to Abel and Beth Baaka and the, Barit- and the Barites, so they were gathered together and went after Sheba. And they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Baaka. And they cast up a siege mound around the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So Joab is now outside of a city. He's taken his job back. And this is a guy who is just, he's out for blood. He's out for vengeance. And now he has his army surrounding a city because one guy is inside the city and he's threatening to tear the walls down. This is, by the way, a city of Israel. And he's threatening to tear the walls down and siege the city and camp around it and make sure starve people out and kill the town. So Joab is doing what he does best. Vengeance, blood, war. Then a wise woman, verse 16, cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. Verse 17, when he had come near to her, the woman said, are you, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely, surely seek the guidance of Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? So she's basically saying, why are you looking to take the entire city because one person's in here? This doesn't make sense, Joab. Let's think peacefully and wisely about this. So Joab answered and said, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, 
Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Johab. Then he threw a trumpet, and they withdrew from the, then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So because of this woman's wisdom, she saved the lives of all the people and quelled the rebellion by the, the death of this one man who was speaking out against David. And uh, Joab returns. Now, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but again, remember, we're dealing with descriptive text. This isn't necessarily saying, none of this says, and the Lord said. <laughs> these are, this is just descriptive nature of what happened in the history. Joab did these things. The woman did this thing. None of this said, because God commanded. Verse 23, And Joab was all over the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahihud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jairite was a chief minister under David. Um, so you just get a list of who the officers in David's, uh, David's government were. Chapter 21. Now there was a famine in these days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, is it, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So now there's been a famine for three years because of something Saul did, and God is responding to this. So what that tells us is that we don't really know where this falls into David's lifetime frame. So this narrative doesn't necessarily read in chronological order at this point. This is something that the author, whomever God had inspired to write these events down, thought it was important to put in here. And there's a piece of Saul's history that we didn't read about in 1 Samuel showing up. Um, why? I don't know, but and we don't know when, but it seems to me like this is happening pretty early on in David's reign. Uh, so we're kind of traveling back in time for a moment. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Now, why is this important? Now, if you remember back to Joshua, in the book of Joshua, as Joshua is conquering the land and taking the promised land for the people as God had commanded, they run across these people, the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites see that Israel, the nation of Israel is taking over everything and they're destroying everything in their path. And so they come up with a clever path or a clever idea where they get in the path of Joshua and they make a treaty with him and say, we're not really from here, spare us. And so they, without asking God what he wants them to do, they decide that, okay, we're going to make a peace treaty with the Gibeonites and then come to find out they live just around the corner. They are from here. Um, but because they made a pact before God, they have chosen to follow that pact and to not destroy the Gibeonites. And so that was something that existed all the way from when Israel was founded 
under the sieges of Joshua, creating the nation of Israel. Now they have their first monarch, and Israel made a pact before God not to destroy these people, but Saul, as usual, goes against anything that was said before God, and he's decided he wants to destroy the Gibeonites. And so now he's being punished for breaking a pact that was made before God, breaking a covenant before God. Um, this to me, while this is just history, and it's just pointing out something that happened in the Old Testament, I do think it is, it is serious to note uh, how much God cares about the covenants we make before him. And I think in particular, you know, of how often do we really make covenants before God in our sort of modern society and life? Not really too often, you know. Um, but there is one, marriage in particular, that's pretty important. And we do make a covenant before God and we make vows um, before God. And so I do think as we're looking at this, we see how seriously God treated this covenant that was made between Israel and the Gibeonites without his consultation, how seriously we should take the commitment that we give each other, uh, that we give before God. Um, because marriage in itself was founded through biblical practice. But moving on, that's separate from what we're talking about tonight. But just a quick note on you know the application of how seriously God takes covenants that we make with him. Uh, verse 3, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And what shall I make atonement? What shall... And, and with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Now, notice, again, as we go through this, because this is going to get rough. It doesn't say David inquired of the Lord to find out what he should do. He didn't. David immediately just asked the Gibeonites what he could do to make peace with them. And so now he's putting himself, he's putting the nation of Israel to make peace uh, and appease the Gibeonites. He's putting that appeasement under the Gibeonites law, not Israel's because he asked them what they should do rather than asking God what to do. So as you read the rest of this, understand that this was not from God's, God's orders. God did not give these orders. Uh, which and the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. Basically saying, um, we don't want money. Money is not going to do it. Um, and we don't want you to kill anybody on our behalf. So it sounds good until you get to the next part. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that would be Saul that we should be destroyed from any remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the one time God 
is included in this decision-making, it's saving someone. Remember that. Because that, I think that's important as we go through how harsh this next part is. That the part where God was mentioned and God was talked to and there was actually a covenant made with God by David, that included saving someone. And that person was Mephibosheth. So the king took Armoni, Mephibosheth, different Mephibosheth. The two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. In the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king had commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. So, first of all, Rizpah was a concubine, apparently, of Saul. And she's mourning because of these, the seven children of, of seven descendants of Saul that have been hung. And David hears about this mourning process and the sackcloth and the issues and just the, the grief over this family and what has gone on. And David acts. He does something to sort of bring this to a conclusion. He gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the bones of the descendants that were hung, and he brings them back to their hometown to be, bath to be uh, buried together in the tomb uh, with Saul's father at the tribe of Benjamin. And so... I mean, even in our society, we think of how we let someone go and how we remember them. Um, and we often think about like burial plots and uh, some of us think about how we want to be buried next to our spouse. Uh, it, so in our society, it's, in, it's important, but imagine that tenfold. Um, so he's doing something to sort of help with the grief and bring some closure to this whole issue with Saul, uh, and finally help people grieve properly and give them some solace in that their resting place is together. Um, so it, at least David does that at the end of this um, and does something to take care of those who are still left mourning for Saul and Jonathan and, and this family. But it does say that she mourned until it rained. 
So we have no idea if this had anything to do or if this appeased God in any way from the scriptures. It doesn't sound like that. It, it just rained. We don't know if the three years was the end of the drought that God had put on these people. Um, so we really, we have no way of, of making a correlation between the drought ending and this punishment from the Gibeonites. Because it wasn't directed by God to do this. And this woman was still mourning until it rained. And David responded after that. So there is no correlation in the scripture between the end of the drought and the punishment of the Gibeonites. You just, you can't draw that. And that's important because this was not commanded by God. The one thing that was commanded by God and where God was actually sought after was that Mephibosheth was not a part of this. Someone was saved, and that was the part where God was brought into it. So I just want to make sure you have an accurate depiction of what role God played in this piece of history, because there wasn't much. A lot of this was just man's decisions. And sometimes it's important to understand that the Bible does do a lot of description of how men make decisions, men and women make decisions. And it doesn't mean that it's actually saying that this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it's just a description of what happened. Now, verse 15, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants uh, with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. This is scary. Then Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. So David is getting weary and faint. Uh, someone sees an opportunity to take, take down David. But Abishai, the son of Zeroiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So what's happening here is David's getting old. He doesn't have the speed he used to have. He's not the man of war he used to be, just from natural decay and age. And I got to tell you, when I read this today, and I'm preparing for tonight, I'm thinking of myself in a way because I just joined a tennis league. And uh, I haven't played competitively in over 15 years. It's been about 18 years since I've had a competitive match. And I've had two matches now, and I am slow. I am really slow. 18 years does a lot to a body, but my brain has not figured it out. When I see something, I think I'm still a 17-year-old kid who weighs 145 pounds and is quick as lightning, and then my body is running in molasses. Uh, and so I imagine that David is dealing with some of that pride issue there and hasn't been able to... Uh, understand that the aging process has slowed him down and he's not quite what he used to be. But his men are not afraid to tell him, you're not allowed to go out to battle with us anymore. You're a distraction because we're protecting you because you're slow. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then uh, Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who is one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jar Oragim, at 
the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. Four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is just letting you know that there are some, uh, still some remnants of the giants, um, you know, probably from the same family as Goliath, the one who David killed, because they're from Gath, which is the same place Goliath was from, and they have some similar features. And then every time, this is just because you need to understand what happens in my brain when I'm reading. When I see that there's someone with six fingers, all I can think of is the princess bride and the six-fingered man. And I'm waiting for Inigo Montoya to show up in the scripture. But he doesn't, because um, God's not silly. I am. But I just, I'm thinking of that, that picture, these, these like warriors, and they're legendary for the Philistines, but the Israelites consistently win. Um, and they take down these, these massive giants. And now we get to chapter 22, the, the chapter I'm most excited about covering today, because what we've dealt with is just history. This is stuff that's happened. God has not been consulted through these two chapters at all. There's just been war breaking out, blood, blood spilled, heads chopped off, um, decisions being made uh, that involve people's lives where God was not consulted. But then you get to chapter 22. And it says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the, when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, so apparently we're going back in time again. This is all the way back from when he was delivered from the hand of Saul. What you're getting, David's about to praise God. And I'm just going to read through the whole thing and we're just going to soak it in. Before we get there, stuff happens. Right? We've read through these two chapters. There's not a ton of application in there because this is really just describing that people make bad decisions. Sometimes people can be bloodthirsty. Sometimes people can be vengeful. Stuff happens. The world happens around us. But we can stop in the chaos and look up and be thankful for what God has done. Because in the midst of the chaos, we realize what God has done for us. I think of Paul when Paul is speaking to God and he's complaining about the thorn in his flesh and asking for it to be healed. And this is Paul. This is a guy who has spoken prophecy. He's spoken in tongues. He has healed other people, yet he cannot get rid of something in his own flesh. He has healed others, but he himself can't be healed. And he's complaining to God about it. And God turns around and says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And he puts everything into perspective. Because regardless of the troubles of this life and the stuff that happens and the stuff that goes on around us and the bad decisions that we and others make that affect everything, that affect war that's breaking out, all of that that's going on, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because regardless of what happens in this world, Jesus did something amazing. That means we can be forgiven and reconciled with God, and that life doesn't have to be temporary. It can be eternal. And that gift is better than anything we can receive 
in the temporary life here because we can experience an eternity in the presence of God, in the presence of perfection and goodness and love. And so we can endure the junk that goes on because of who God is. And so this is David recognizing what God has done for him in the midst of the chaos. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surround me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. And my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed, he bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he, see, he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the most high uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord re rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop, but my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You shall also give me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them, so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations, as people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their, from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. In the midst of all that, those are the words David has to say to his God, constantly pointing out in David's weakness, God is strong. It's just like when he fought Goliath. David wasn't looking at his stature compared to Goliath, thinking he could win that fight. He was looking at God's stature compared to Goliath and knowing God could win that fight. And so David is a man who sees himself as a servant of God, who is imperfect but through God's forgiveness can be seen as righteous if he continues to strive to love God. And God becomes his salvation. And that comes true. Through the line of David, God becomes our salvation through Jesus. And so when you look at all of this, and all these things that, that went down and they don't make sense and they're part of the narrative. And then it concludes with David sharing that. Get this, the, word, the world is chaos. The world is broken. But God's grace is sufficient. And it's always a good idea to be thankful and to praise him for his goodness. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the song that David sings. And thank you for fulfilling being the rock of our salvation through David's descendants, through your son, Jesus. Help us to come to him when the world does and doesn't make sense. Help us to understand that even when everything seems wrong, 
The world is temporary, but life is eternal. And we can have it abundantly if we believe in the resurrection of the Son and follow him faithfully. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.